Good morning. As most of you are aware that um, I, when I'm preaching two, three times a year, I usually go through the book of Colossians, so that's what we'll be looking at today, and uh, we are at Colossians chapter 2, verses 16. We'll be looking at specifically chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. I've titled my sermon this morning, Beware of Syncretism. 500 years ago, the Protestant Reformation was shaped by what is sometimes called the five solas. Contrary to what us in Mennonite culture are often led to believe, the Reformation actually really wasn't so much about mental Simons and rebaptism, although he was certainly involved in the Reformation, but it wasn't so much about that, the Reformation as a whole, where the Reformation as a whole in itself was more about the issue of justification by faith alone, and baptism was merely a branch of that. And this doctrine of justification by loan led to the five solas being articulated to distinguish the people who became known as the Protestants, which would include us, and the Roman Catholic Church. Protestants believe that Christianity in itself rises and falls on these five solas. These five solas are known as solas Christus, sola scriptura, Sola gratia, sola fide, and soli deo gloria. And these are Latin terms. Some of you may know them, some may not. But these are Latin terms which mean literally Christ alone, Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, and all to the glory of God alone. And these things set the Reformers apart from the Roman Catholic Church who believed that the church itself was the dispenser of these things, that the church dispensed grace and faith to the people. So the church and tradition were actually added to the work of Christ through the Roman Catholic Church, as though Jesus Christ really wasn't enough. And that was the issue in the church in Colossae as well. Not that they were adding the Roman Catholic Church traditions, obviously, to Christ, but they were adding their own traditions to Jesus Christ. And they were not practicing the doctrine of Christ alone. You see, it is Christ alone who is sufficient to save. It is Christ alone who is king Christ alone is the high priest. Christ alone is the mediator. Christ alone is our righteousness. In the first two chapters of Colossians, Paul makes this very clear as he over and over again builds upon the foundation of Jesus Christ, lifting him up in order to show the stark contrast between who Jesus Christ is and these false teachings that these teachers were bringing into the church. And we see that in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, a couple verses previous, where we see that Paul's central concern in writing to the Colossians is, see to it, he says, that no one takes you captive. So make sure that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition and according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. You see, adding anything to the person and work of Jesus Christ, whether it's traditions or anything else, anything that we cannot find in Scripture would be to bring a person back into captivity and bondage. It doesn't actually make a person more valuable in God's eyes. It doesn't make a person more spiritual. It does the opposite than what we, the intended effect that we often want it to bring. 
The person may feel more spiritual through his outward actions, but in reality, they are actually dethroning Jesus Christ and his work. They are making light of him. In verses 9 to 15, Paul elaborates on Christ and he shines light on the alternative to the false teachings and a reliance on human efforts. The fullness of the spiritual experience is found in Christ alone in whom all the fullness of God dwells. So now in our verses today, verses 16 and 17, Paul shifts focus and he confronts these false teachings head on. The main point in the verse that we just read previously, 2 verse 8, not to follow false teachings is also at the heart of these verses. And Paul gives two very distinct commands concerning this. He says, do not let anyone disqualify you and do not let anyone judge you in verse 18. So what exactly is syncretism? Syncretism is when you attempt to combine two different things. You're trying to sync them. You're trying to to make one out of two, maybe. But the thing is, Christ is exclusive, and he cannot, in reality, be synced with anything. You see, these false teachers weren't actually denying Jesus, and they weren't denying what he did. But they were adding to him. Basically, they were saying, Jesus, what you did isn't quite enough. If you're really a Christian, you need to also be doing these things. They were undermining him and removing him from his rightful place on the throne. And they were trying to sink Christ with traditions and paganism. And I believe that there are many different ways that we as believers can even do that in our day-to-day lives, whether it's, whether it's through um, feeling guilt for something maybe that the Bible doesn't say that we need to feel guilt over, or whether it's through through liberalism even, or like we see in the world today, or antinomianism, or, or even counseling methods, or church government. And a, a popular one might be enforcing baptism for marriage. We are dethroning Christ when we are doing these things. So here in chapter 2, Paul addresses some specific ways the false teachers were adding to Jesus Christ. And they were adding to him with traditions, telling the Colossians believer... Colossian believers, according to verse 16, that they needed to keep certain holy days, they needed to keep certain feasts, and they needed to keep the Sabbath. And then in verse 18, they were trying to sing Christ with pagan practices, such as claiming to have direct communication with God and angels through visions. And the third way Paul highlights the false teacher's syncretism is through an ascetic lifestyle in verse 20. And these three areas of syncretism really fall under one main category called legalism. Legalism is anything that we attempt to add to our faith, to Christ or to the Bible, that you think you must do or not do in order to be saved. Or even if you think that you must do them in order to be more spiritual or to be more in tune with God or that God will look more favorably upon you. And it's ironic that even charismatics today who claim a higher level of spirituality through speaking in tongues, visions, or hearing directly from God is in fact not a higher form of spirituality. It is a form of bondage and legalism. Now, just to also be clear, when, I, when I'm speaking of, of, of do's and don'ts, I'm speaking of do's and don'ts the Bible doesn't give. See, Christ alone and Scripture alone 
go hand in hand. You cannot have one without the other. For example, the Bible says we should be thankful. So we should be thankful. But as believers, we also believe that our strength to be thankful isn't from our own ability. And therefore, through our ability, we can be thankful. We believe that it is the Holy Spirit working in us that gives us the ability to be thankful. But that is a sermon in itself, so we'll leave that there. But no matter what it is that we attempt to add to Jesus, the point remains the same, that any time we add something to Jesus Christ and to his finished work, as found in the Scriptures, we are guilty of syncretism and legalism and having a puffed up and sensuous mind, as Paul describes, and are attempting to feed our body spiritually with the things of man. Today we will look mainly, as I said before, at verses 16 and 17, where Paul addresses traditions. And I had originally planned on going through at least verse 19, but I quickly realized that there was much to be said maybe in these two verses alone. So we'll look more at the mysticism of verses 18 and 19 next time. Um, there's one other thing that I should add, that we will also be looking at Romans 14 a bit. And it's important to remember that although the passage seems similar, we must keep in mind the context of the two passages is actually quite different. In Romans 14, we had an issue where there was a difference of opinion on matters of conscience between actual believers, between actual brothers in Christ. And here we have actual false teachers infiltrating the church. So let's read Colossians chapter 2. We'll start at verse, we'll start at verse 6 and we'll read down to chapter 3 verse 4. So therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceits according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come but the substance belongs to Christ. Let let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. 
If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So note how in our text that Paul confronts the false teachings along with the command to not disqualify or not judge on the basis of false teachings. But then he also points to the better solution. In verse 16, he addresses the problem along with the command. And then in verse 17, he provides the solution. In verse 18, he addresses another problem with a command. And then in verse 19, he again provides the solution. And then again in verse 20, he again outlines a problem. And then from 20 to 23, and then in chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, he again provides a solution. And remember, the solution isn't something that Paul is just bringing up now. He has been, he has been, he has built up the solution throughout the book so far and why Jesus is the better solution and the only solution. So we look this morning at the problem of false outward actions, and then we'll also look at the solution. Verse 16, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. I read a testimony one time of a woman caught within a religious sect of Mennonite culture, and she explained legalism this way before she managed to escape. She said, imagine walking into a hospital bed with 10 beds. A person is lying on each bed. Each person is hooked up to a life support machine. Each person is lying motionless, and you can see their chest moving up and down as the machines fill their lungs with oxygen, and then it gets exhaled. Each person has their eyes closed. Each person looks exactly the same. But five of these people are, in reality, dead, while five are still alive as they're hooked up to these life support machines. Yet they're all, all acting exactly the same way Outwardly, So it seems impossible to tell who is dead and who is alive inwardly. Legalism and religious rules are like that. It causes people to outwardly act the same way, to act in a religious manner. Yet many people who act in a religious manner outwardly are actually spiritually dead inside. But it is so hard to tell because how these rules cause them to behave. They have been changed outwardly by their religious rules, but not inwardly. In reality, they are dead. But remove the life support, remove the extra-biblical religious rules, and the truth will be revealed about who they really are. You see, legalism is very deceptive because it, it can, because anyone can conform to a set of external rules, which can cause everyone to act and look the same. The way that their, the religion wants them to act, but inwardly they can still be dead. And the false teachers in Colossae were trying to intimidate the believers into legalism. Verse 16 tells us, let no one pass judgment on you. Don't allow anybody to judge you based on extra-biblical religious rules. And that is often what legalists will do. They want others to act and look the same as them, and so they intimidate others and they cast judgment on them for being different. And a legalist will set himself up as the standard for Christianity 
And then they will hold others to the same standard and push these standards on others. Your dress isn't long enough. Are you even saved? Your hair isn't done a certain way. Are you even saved? You shouldn't have that kind of a hobby. You shouldn't have a beard. You should have a beard. You shouldn't play sports. You work on a Mennonite holiday. You don't use the King James Bible. You don't use the English Standard Bible. You're on Facebook. You need to be more concerned about social justice. On and on and on. Are you even saved? And then they will question that person's salvation based on extra-biblical standards. And how often do we pass that same judgment on others based on outward appearance and outward actions? Or based on hobbies? Or based on Christian practices of others? Which we may think are sinful, yet the Bible never condemns. You see, the Bible, if the Bible doesn't condemn something, then it is nothing but a preference. And if we push our preferences on others, then it becomes legalism. And this is also connected to one of the five solas, as I mentioned before, sola scriptura, scripture alone, which means we need to believe the Bible is not only inerrant, but we must believe that the Bible is sufficient. Very important word. that The Bible is sufficient for all things pertaining to life and godliness. And pushing our extra-biblical preferences on others is a denial that the Bible really is sufficient. And this means that our minds... And consciences must be shaped by Scripture, not by our traditions, how we were raised, or experiences. Christ alone and Scripture alone must go hand in hand. Christians have found freedom in Jesus Christ because they have been set free through Christ. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Oops, I'm at Galatians chapter 1 here. For freedom, Galatians 5 verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. So here we had Paul addressing the, um, the Galatians who were attempting to add circumcision to Jesus Christ. And he said, look, if you're doing this, if you're adding something to Jesus Christ, in reality, Christ becomes of no value. Because Christ has set you free, you do not need to add anything to Jesus Christ. So Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17 is a warning then to Christians to not trade their freedom for useless man-made rules. Legalism is powerless to save or even to restrain sin. Paul says, do not let anyone pass judgment on you. And if you have been set free in Christ, then submitting again to rules does nothing except put us back into bondage. Look again at verse 16 and notice how it starts with therefore. And remember that when we see the word therefore, it connects it with the verses previous. Verse 14 tells us that the legal demands of sin and the law have been nailed to the cross. Verse 15 notes how the rulers and authorities, demonic presences and influences, have been disarmed. Therefore, you are free in Christ, and Christ has set you free. Therefore, don't let anyone pass judgment on you regarding any form of legalism. 
And, and understand that if you pass unbiblical judgment on others, you are dethroning Christ and saying he isn't quite enough, and you are attempting to put a fellow believer for whom Christ died back into bondage. Now, there is a way for Christians to judge other Christians, and that is using the Bible alone as a standard. And Pastor Mike addresses that in a previous sermon from Matthew chapter 7, so I won't say too much about that, and you can go listen to that online if you want. But again, that is not what Paul is saying here. The issue is judgment based upon things added to Jesus Christ. You can almost hear the false teacher saying, if you're really a Christ follower, then you would also be keeping these holy days, and you would have a higher level of spirituality like we do, and you would deny yourself certain things. Doesn't this type of criticism sound familiar? I know for myself, I have been certainly guilty of this type of judgment on others in the past. So looking back at our text, we see that Paul is speaking specifically here regarding food and drink and festivals, new moons and the Sabbath. Paul isn't necessarily condemning these things in themselves. What he is condemning, though, is the fact that these false teachers are trying to intimidate believers into keeping them. He is condemning that the, the fact that the false teacher is saying, if you really are a Christian, then you will also observe a certain holy day, and you will also have access into a spiritual visionary realm, and you will communicate with and worship angels, and you will also deny yourself certain things. And Paul commands believers, do not allow yourself to be judged in these matters. Food and drink, new moon festivals and the Sabbath, and they, they all have their root in the Old Testament Jewish laws and customs. And this part of the false teachings infiltrating the church seemed certainly to be Jewish in nature, in nature. And we can find these laws as given to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. In Leviticus chapter 11, God tells the people that they, what they can and cannot eat. In Leviticus chapter 23 describes the feast and their purposes. Numbers 28 speaks of monthly or new moon offerings that people were to partake in. And the Sabbath was a day the Lord told the Israelites to keep as a holy day of rest following six days of work. Similar instructions can also be found in Romans 14. The difference being, as I mentioned before, in Romans it was the weaker brother, but an actual believer abstaining from food or drink, whereas in Colossians it is the false teachers trying to convince believers to abstain from food or drink. Why don't we turn to Romans chapter 14, and we'll read a few verses there. Romans 14, starting in verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the weak who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld. For the Lord is able to make him stand. And skipping down to verse 13, we read, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. 
By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Note how here in Romans 14, verse 14, as well as in Colossians, Paul clearly does not want Christians to think that they need to abstain from food or drink. I'd like to point out that the Bible does not specify what the food or drink is, and there are certain things the Bible is very clear on regarding food and drink, and that is gluttony and drunkenness. But that is not the, that is not what is in question here, and we absolutely must abstain from that. But what is in question is what type of food or drink is being consumed, not in what quantities. Paul clearly doesn't want believers to think there are certain types of food or drink that would be unlawful. But the text in Romans 14 also clearly indicates that it isn't only the weaker brother or the false teachers who are in danger of being judgmental. Someone who believes that they are free to eat and drink what they please can actually also bring judgment upon the weaker brother for whom Christ died. Romans 14 verse 20 says, Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. So we see also in Colossians chapter 2 verse 16, we see that the false teachers were advocating an observance of special days. We see that they were advocating festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths. They were trying to intimidate people to keep these days. And there's probably not a whole lot to say about festivals and new moons. They were usually feast days people kept in celebration of a special event. And in a sense, we Mennonites do the same things. We Mennonites love to gather and we love to eat. We love to enjoy a good meal together. And in our Mennonite culture, we love to keep our Mennonite holidays, which is good. But the command to keep these holidays is not found in Scripture. So, for example, to tie this in with what Paul is saying, there's nothing wrong in and of itself with keeping these holidays. But if we think that we or someone else is sinning for not keeping it, or even think that we are better than the person who doesn't keep it, then we are adding to Christ and not relying on him for our sanctification and holiness, but we're relying on our own works and good actions. We are dethroning him and saying what he did wasn't quite enough. Now, regarding these festivals and new moons, Paul addresses in verse 16, there is some debate whether they were Jewish or pagan in origin, but I believe that since the Sabbath was also mentioned, that they were Jewish in origin. And Paul is probably referring to Jewish customs and feasts. For a closer look, look, let's turn to Leviticus chapter 23, verse 1. If you have your Bibles, turn to Leviticus chapter 23, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations, and they are my appointed feast. And then, if we would continue reading from there, I guess, a list of special days and feasts were given, which the nation of Israel was supposed to keep. They were the Sabbath, the Passover, the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Trumpets, And God gave Israel these feasts as holy days to remember his promises, to remember what he had done for them. And it's interesting to me that even today, the Sabbath is the only day in that list that some people advocate must be kept. But why only the Sabbath? Why not all of these days then? Why be inconsistent? And I think if part of this confusion 
comes from the belief that our Sunday morning gathering, what we're doing today, is a continuation of Old Testament Sabbath law, which I don't believe it is. So why do Christians worship on Sunday morning, the first day of the week, instead of Saturday, the seventh day of the week? First, it is important to understand that a biblical command to gather in corporate worship has been given to Christians today under the new covenant and not the old covenant. And we find that in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, which says, And let us consider how to stir up one another in love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. So Christians are commanded to meet together in a corporate worship setting. So why is this meeting together for a corporate worship not considered a continuation of the old Sabbath law? Well, Christians are never commanded in the New Testament to keep the Sabbath. The only example the Bible gives us of Christians gathering on a certain day was always the first day of the week in celebration of the day that the Lord rose from the grave. If you want, you can turn to Acts chapter 20, verse 7. Acts chapter 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, so on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. So here Paul is preaching to a gathering of Christians on the first day of the week, where they also partook in, sorry, where they also partook in communion. Preaching and communion is a clear indica- indicator of a corporate worship gathering. And then again in 1 Corinthians 16, if you want to turn there, we see again in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 1, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. So here again, we see Paul instructs that money or the church to raise money to raise a collection on the first day of the week, which also clearly implies a gathering of Christians. So just as Christians are never commanded to keep the Sabbath in the New Testament, Gentiles were never commanded in the Old Testament to keep the Sabbath. Nor in the Old Testament were Gentiles ever condemned for failing to keep it. So looking back again at Colossians 2, Paul relegates the Sabbath here to a shadow. He says the Sabbath and these days are a shadow that is pointing to the substance so if the shadow is merely pointing, is merely, a, or if the Sabbath is merely a shadow pointing to the substance, then how can it be binding? Paul clearly tells the Colossian believers here that they should not allow themselves to be intimidated into keeping the Sabbath. So what was the Sabbath and how would it apply to us today? Because it does have application to us today. So the Sabbath was assigned to Israel of the Old Covenant. Let's look at a few Old Testament passages, starting in Exodus chapter 31. If you want to turn there, Exodus chapter 31, verse 15. Especially as we tie in the application of the Sabbath now, I think it's really good to be able to see it for yourself with your own eyes, what the Scripture says here. So Exodus 31, verse 15, Six days 
shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me, being God, and the people of Israel, that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. The next passage we'll go to is Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 11. And a little bit later on, we'll again go to these two passages. But Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 11. says, I gave them my statutes and made known to them my rules by which if a person does them, he shall live. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules by which if a person does them, he shall live. And my Sabbaths they greatly profaned. Then I said, I would pour out my wrath upon them in the wilderness to make a full end of them. So we see how the Sabbath was given to Israel as part of the Old Testament law under the Old Covenant. So what does the New Testament have to say about about how Christians should view the Old Testament law of which the Sabbath was a part of? According to Jewish religious leaders and customs, even Jesus broke the Sabbath when he plucked the grain for his disciples to eat. So if the Sabbath is part of the Old Covenant Jewish law, then let's look at what the the New Testament has to say about how Christians today are to view the law. So Romans chapter 10, verse 4. So now we'll look at how Christians today are to view the law. Romans 10, 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So we see here there's a certain group of people in this verse to whom is the end of the law. And that group is everyone who believes. And then in Galatians chapter 3, verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So no part of the law has power to justify, which is what Paul really wants the Colossians to understand, to not allow themselves to be intimidated by anyone into keeping the law. And then Ephesians Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. So we see there that for the new man, the law has been abolished. So looking back at Colossians in chapter 2, verse 14, a couple of verses previous to our text, Colossians 2, 14, it says, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So the legal demands of the law have been set aside and he no longer hold, and, and they no longer hold any power. So you see, the Sabbath was intended to be part of the Old Testament law as a sign to Israel. 
So now let's take a quick look at the specific fulfillment of the Sabbath and how it applies to us today. And remember the passage in Exodus tells us the Sabbath is a sign to Israel of the Lord's rest. So Exodus 31 verse 17 again. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. But then, in the passage that we read in Ezekiel chapter 20, Israel rejected this rest. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 11, But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk on my statutes, but rejected my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. And my Sabbaths they greatly profaned. Then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them in the wilderness to make a full end to them. So let's turn to Psalm 95 now. So since Israel rebelled against God, he promised the Israelites would not enter his rest, that they would not enter his Sabbath. So turn to Psalm 95, verse 7, starting in verse 7. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in Meribah, as on the day of, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test, and I put, and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. But what does God mean, they shall not enter my rest? Even in these Old Testament passage already, we see how the Sabbath is a shadow pointing to something more, pointing to God's rest. So here, and especially in Psalm 95, we see that the rest is referring to God's salvific rest. It is speaking of a rest from our works and relying on God's work. He is speaking of salvation. And the author of Hebrews, which where we will go next, makes that clear when he ties this all together. That the Sabbath is a shadow pointing to the substance which is salvation in Christ. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter, we'll start in chapter 3. Where the author of Hebrews is actually quoting Psalm 95 that we just read as well. So these are the same verses that the Hebrew author is using. So Hebrews 3, starting in verse 15. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was there not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that, wh- that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, 
As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he says, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So, brothers and sisters, if you have believed upon the Son of God for salvation, then you have entered the Sabbath rest. The Sabbath has been fulfilled for you. The author of Hebrews shows us how the Sabbath was a shadow pointing to the substance being Jesus Christ and His rest. And God has granted all believers the eternal rest, the eternal Sabbath. There is therefore no justification for keeping the Sabbath, nor for treating our, our Sunday, the Christian day of worship, as the Sabbath, beyond what has been commanded. And this now ties into our second subpoint, the solution. The solution. Looking back at Colossians chapter 2, verse 17. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The conclusion then must be that it is wrong for someone to pass judgment on someone else in the matter of holy day observances or even Mennonite holidays because these things are merely a shadow pointing to the substance, pointing to the thing that actually matters. For example, when I focus on my wife, I don't focus on her shadow, although admittedly she probably sometimes thinks I do. But I focus on her person, or at least I should. It would be strange to talk to a person's shadow when the person, the substance, is right there. Why are we focusing on the shadow then? The shadow will sometimes let us know if someone is there. For example, when I'm sneaking up on my kids or or Sheila to, to scare them, maybe. I need to be careful or my shadow will alert them of my presence, that I am coming. In the same way, the shadow of the law was to alert the Jews to the coming of the Messiah, not only to his coming, but to his work and atonement for sins. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 says that, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Believers now experience the reality and live in the reality in which the Old Testament and the law pointed to. There is no reason to go back to the old when the new has come. So why are Christians able to view the law in this way, that we no longer need to keep any aspect of it? What happened? Did God change his mind and just decide to abolish the law? Let's turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Let's look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. 
Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You see, the law was unable to save us. And the only way to enter heaven in the Old Testament was that someone was actually able to keep the law perfectly. But no one can. The law was given to show or to prove that no one comes close to being able to earn their own righteousness. That is the purpose of the law. But Christ came, and Christ kept the law perfectly in our place. He fulfilled the law, as he just said. He kept the law for us through his perfect and sinless life. So now when we believe in him for salvation, he takes the legal demands of the law and nails it to the cross, and the demand of keeping the law has been set aside because Christ has done that for us. If we still needed to keep the law, then there would have been no point for him to keep it. So when we believe upon him for salvation, Christ's actions of perfectly keeping the law is credited to us as if we had perfectly kept the law. And our sin was laid upon him, and he paid for our sins, even though we were deserving of death for them. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, we who have received this righteousness, this perfect keeping of the law. True spirituality is not an outward appearance or keeping a certain set of rules or making ourselves the standard for Christian behavior than holding others to the same standard. True spirituality is having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Note again how Paul contrasts Christ in the first two chapters of Colossians when he says that, when he says that in Christ is all wisdom and knowledge found. And in Christ, we are fully pleasing to God. In Christ, we have been qualified to share an inheritance. In Christ, we have been delivered. He is the firstborn of creation, preeminent, and he is the fullness of God, the fullness of deity. And he has reconciled us, presented us blameless and holy and spiritually mature before God the Father. And he has canceled the record of debt, and he has disarmed rulers and authorities. In conclusion, brothers and sisters, there's nothing to be added to Jesus Christ. And any attempt to do so dethrones him and shows a distrust distrust in his finished work. And if you are not trusting in Christ alone today, I invite you to to do so. If you are a believer, yet you are clinging to a list of do's and don'ts not found in Scripture, let go of them. Don't submit yourself again to bondage. Christ has set you free. Not free to sin, but free from sin and free to trust in him alone. The good news is not what I do or what you do. The good news is what Christ did. And that is why we must cling to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for our sins. We thank you that in him all wisdom and knowledge is found. That there is nothing that we can do or nothing that we can add to these, to the gospel, to what Christ has done. Help us, Lord, to, to stop trying, to stop giving our efforts. 
which are feeble anyway. Help us, Lord, to cling up to your strength. Help us to understand that when we do, that when we do attempt to, to add to your work that we are dethroning you, help us to look to you for salvation alone. Help us to understand that, it, that all things pertaining to the Christian life are through Christ alone. All for the glory of God alone. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.